Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Christianity and Crime. I think that there is something within us that wants blood. There's a holy kind of urge there. There's some type of expiation needed. And, and this is the best we have. I, I, I think the problem is we don't have a better way of expiating the terrible losses and violence that, that crime brings. And crime brings it. Crime destroys. Crime destroys. And we need some type of expiation. The attempt to find a better way of atoning for crime than asking for blood is the subject of tonight's program. It features a group of radical Christians engaged in a search for what they call restorative as opposed to retributive justice. And it describes their efforts to build circles of support around released prisoners whom the community fear. I believe we have to do something with people who are, are difficult because I don't think we are safe unless they are safe and they are not safe unless we welcome them back into the community and we'll take some responsibility for being with them, understanding them, and, and setting some guidelines and boundaries. Christianity and Crime is the tenth and final program in our series Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. Pierre Allard is a Baptist minister who joined the Correctional Service of Canada in 1972. He began as the chaplain of the Archambault Penitentiary in Quebec, then moved to Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick, and today he's the Correctional Service of Canada's Director of Chaplaincy. As director, he's extended the chaplain's mandate outside the prison by installing community chaplains to work with ex-offenders and with the families of prisoners. He's also put forward a vision of justice which stresses the interests of the victims of crime, as well as the offenders with whom he's worked. He traces his commitment to the inclusion of victims in the definition of justice back to an event that turned his own world upside down. For the first uh, eight years of my ministry, I was working with prisoners. If you had stopped me long enough and said, are there victims out there? I would have said, yes. But in practice, the fact that there were victims there did not enter the way I shaped my pastoral ministry and my counseling with the people. And it took a, a very a rude awakening. In 1980, I was then uh, working in Dorchester Penitentiary and I lived in Moncton. I received a phone call from the RCMP uh, early one March morning in 1980, telling me that uh, my brother had been uh, brutally murdered and had been dropped in a field outside of Montreal. They had found him frozen there. It changes your world because it, uh, then you, you, you are part of, of the arm that is being done. And uh, it was a spiritual crisis because I had been uh, going in churches and any group that invited me, <laughs> I would go you know, and challenge them to have better approaches to, to prisoners and to not forget them out of sight, out of mind, to try to fight that, that thing. And then you, you, you feel the anger. You go through the, the phases of uh, you want to hit back. And I remember like going to the funeral for my brother in Quebec City. And uh, my older brother, who does not necessarily share my, my religious conviction, uh, just before we went into the, uh, the church, we were going to carry the, the casket. 
he really became very angry and he said, you know, he said, we have no guts. He said, we're going in the church to pray to a God I don't even believe in. If we had any guts, we wouldn't be here in the church. We would be in the bars in Montreal trying to find out who did it and do the same thing to them. And there was very much part of me that identified with that. But we went through the, the funeral, of course, and uh, then I went back to my church, which is behind the walls at Dorchester Penitentiary at that time. And I remember in the middle of the night, as people were sleeping, sitting alone in that chapel and looking at a cross that one of the inmates had made and and started crying like a baby. And for me, they were healing, uh, healing tears. And uh, I never looked back on that. I did not want, they have never found the, the people who killed my brother, but I did not want those people to be executed like a, like my brother had died. I wanted them to come to discover life the way I see life. Because if people saw life the way I see life, they would not take another life. So there was a deep, deep yearning of saying, I wish and pray to God that they would come to see life you know, the way it is. And that's been a desire that I've uh, pursued uh, and carried in my heart. Pierre Allard's change of heart, from thoughts of revenge to thoughts of reconciliation, mirrors the movement of the Christian Bible. The Bible, on one level, is a virtual catalog of crimes. In the very first generation of Adam and Eve's descendants, Cain murders his brother Abel. Moses commits murder. David has a man killed because he fancies his wife. Even God is stirred to vengeance by the wickedness of his people. But through all this runs the promise of deliverance, which is fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus is presented as the innocent sacrifice who ends the need for sacrifice forever, the scapegoat who turns the very idea of the scapegoat inside out. Repay no one evil for evil, Paul wrote to the Romans, but overcome evil with good. This was the faith of the early church. It informed Augustine in the year 412 when a friend of his was murdered, and he wrote to the judge commending mercy. Be not provoked to revenge, he advised Judge Marcellinus, but rather heal the wounds which the murderers have inflicted on their own souls. Another father of the church, Augustine's contemporary, Bishop Ambrose of Milan, was criticized by his flock for melting the church's gold plate to buy freedom for prisoners. But this was not to become the dominant tendency within official Christianity, Pierre Allard says. As long as the Christians had to hide in catacombs and, and they were very much, you know, living according to the, the message of Jesus and the gospel, they had within themselves that kind of very, very generous approach, wanting to forgive. Now, when the emperors Constantine and Theodosius made the Christianity, if you want, legit, they said, that's okay, get out of your catacomb, you know, we're not going to throw you to the lions anymore. There's been a cost to pay for that. For example, those emperors like uh, Theodosius abolish crucifixions out of respect for Jesus, like that people would not die by crucifixions anymore out of respect for Jesus. That, that was positive. But he also then decided to give to the bishops civil power to over some litigations. And that was a, a very dangerous concept to introduce within the court. Because instead of Christianity permeating the Roman Empire in the area of justice, in the area of criminal justice, it's the opposite that has happened. It's the Roman concept of law 
a kind of a balance on a scale, the Roman concept of law that permeated the church. And it permeated the church to the point where no one even raised questions. And, and for me, one of the fascinating episodes of church history, and I hope we can correct it one day, is that when the reform came, when the reform came and tried to rediscover it so much in terms you know, of salvation and in terms of new life, they never raised a question about our concept of justice. They just assumed that what was there was Christian, and we continued like that. Christians were involved at every step in devising our contemporary penal institutions. The power to prosecute offenders was part of canon law long before it was claimed by the state. Moral theologians refined precise verbal descriptions of sins and assigned the exact number of days in purgatory required to atone long before there were criminal codes which spelled out jail terms for every offense. And the monastery, Pierre says, provided the model for the modern penitentiary. Monasteries and prisons have a lot in common. And when in 1703, Pope Clement XI opened up St. Michael's House of Corrections for, and it's so sad, for teenagers beyond control, he took the architectural model from the, from the monks. It was radiating cells with isolation. When we created the first penitentiaries in North America, Cherry Hill in the state of Pennsylvania in the 1820s, and then Auburn in the state of New York. We copied that same. If you ask me in a nutshell, I would say that one of the greatest fallacies of the modern prison has been to base it on isolation. It, it goes completely against what those people need. They don't need isolation. They need a new community. They need to be challenged to change their behavior so they can re-enter differently. And I think that's been one of the great fallacies. And if the one of the fascinating things of history is that Jean Mabillon was a monk himself and a great historian, when he studied what the isolation had done to the monks, he concluded that it had never helped one of them. That instead of being held by being ostracized from the community, a number of the monks that were put in that situation went crazy. They became very depressed, and it was not conducive to a new reinsertion into the community. So we could ask the question, if they had gone and asked the monk, did it work for you? We might have been tempted not to introduce it in such a fashion. Imprisonment on the monastic model of ostracization still monopolizes our response to crime. But it's an institution that's inherently dehumanizing, according to Mennonite minister Harry Nye. In 1973, Harry Nye started M2W2, short for man-to-man, woman-to-woman, an organization which connected visitors with prisoners in 20 Ontario prisons. He directed the organization for 14 years. Today, he's the pastor of a combination church and community center in Hamilton called Welcome In. To be most profoundly human is to be able to love and to be able to feel, to be personal. And those are the things which get get deeply buried in prison. Every prison, in my sense, has a consistency of feel. There's a certain kind of consistent role-playing that happens as soon as you go in, that happens with, with people holding keys and people, other people wearing prison garb. It seems to me that as soon as that dynamic is set up, you've got something happening which is dehumanizing. 
when you have the, the dynamic of keeper and kept, you have a, an underlying destruction of the human soul. And, and, and even in the best situations. I'm not a prison abolitionist, but I, I, I noticed that that is something which happens. And I remember one, one guard telling me, you know, when I come in here, he was a guard at Millbrook Correctional Center, when I come in here in the morning, I turn my feelings off. I never forget that statement. And um, the incidence of personal devastation in the lives of staff has been well documented. Alcoholism and, and the kind of social devastation that happens to staff is just as severe as it is for, for prisoners. And I had staff who were, were friends of mine. We had correctional officers on our board of directors, for example. And I remember in t listening in tears to one man who was, a, who was a guard at a prison talking about the suspicion with which other guards treated him because he wasn't hard enough. You know, there's no healing. One of the most problematic aspects of imprisonment for Harry Nye is the way that many prisoners become habituated to it. The stigma becomes a badge of belonging, the regimentation a substitute for self-control. I met a kid once. I met him from at Millbrook the day after he got out. And Millbrook is a maximum security provincial prison here uh, where there's a lot of lockup and so on. And I met him on uh, in the west end of Toronto at a, and where he was having breakfast at this restaurant. There he was at the very back of the room, at the back of the restaurant, <laughs> and this greasy spoon, his back against the wall. I mean, that would be common because you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to have to have your back exposed to people. And he looked so scared. And I went up to him and I said, uh, "How's it going?" He said, "I'm, I tell you, I'm, I sort of miss my cell. They feel as soon as they walk out that everybody knows them." I've been with guys on their first day out, and they, they seem like they have to explain to people, I just got out of jail. You know? I mean, it, they feel that's written all over them, that they are like lepers coming out, and, and they still have the spots. And I think a lot of young men and older men that I've known know the routine. They know the fact that they're going to be fed. They, there's even the security of the regular counts and so on. So that they live in this kind of polarity of, of, of hating prison, of not wanting to be a loser. But on the other hand, when life's pressures build up, particularly when a relationship goes sour, this is one oasis, really. And I think people subconsciously choose prison, often, particularly people who, uh, who have grown up in a kind of culture in which um, prison has been actually, and sometimes, seen as a mark of, uh, of coming of age. The dependency it induces is one of the many uncounted costs of imprisonment, according to Pierre Allard. Some of these costs are incalculable human losses. Some are very real costs to the state. Just think even for the, the financial side of things, eh? what it's costing us to keep them in jail, the chances are that if he was the breadwinner, that then his wife goes on welfare, which is another added cost. But also what does it do to himself you see, you learn to live in jail. You adjust. We have an incredible capacity as human beings to adjust. So you, you find, I've always said, you know, in, in, in minor cases when you give like two years and over, I said, put a guy in jail three days and then get him out and suspend the sentence over his head. We would have an incredible uh, greater success because after you've been there three months, four months, you get adjusted. You find a certain camaraderie and this is what uh, communities, are, and, and I'm always talking in terms of the faith communities. 
I've failed to understand is that although like many, many guys at times are well-intentioned and mean well when they come out and they don't want to go back into that, unless they have created new social bonds and a new community, if they don't have a new community to go back to, they're going to go back to the old community of friends because there's such a, a need for each one of us to belong somewhere. You know, I say jokingly at times, like, uh, I dream of the day where at the foot of a penitentiary, there's going to be a yellow bus, you know, a school, Sunday school bus full of uh, people from a church saying, hi, Joe, welcome back, you know. You're going to have to do your part, but as far as we're concerned, we're going to offer you a lot of friendship. We're going to support you. Instead, he gets out of there. He's alone. Where does he go? He hits the tavern. The guys see him. Oh, man, they hug him. They, you know, they treat him like to women song and dance. And they're so happy to see him, and they call him by name, and he feels that he has returned. And they treat him like this for a few weeks, and then they say, well, you know, Joe, now it's time you go back to work. He hates it, and he loves it. He knows what it means. He doesn't want to go back to jail, but he also knows that what he's going to start doing now will bring him back. I don't want to be simplistic, but I think that uh, I have come to realize that it's not our individual effort that are going to make a big difference. It has to be the impact of a community of faith on a community of crime, because these people need a new community. To meet the need of people coming out of prison for a new community, Pierre Allard developed the idea of community chaplaincy. The community chaplain in Toronto since 1992 has been a Baptist minister called Hugh Kierkegaard. He works with ex-offenders and he works with the families of people who are in prison. The whole family work is a new thing for us and, and it's a very significant thing because what what we've begun to realize is that the families of male offenders are are often in effect widows and their children are orphans and there are a lot of things that accrue to the family as a result of the the lack of male presence there that put them in a very uh, precarious position in the community the stigma they carry not because they've done something wrong but simply because they love someone who has done something wrong. The stigma they carry for that is a very debilitating thing. You know, we have families who come to us from churches and we say, have you talked with anybody in your church about this? We, they, we can't talk about this. They wouldn't understand. The woman who says, my son is uh, working out of, out of the city now. He has a job out of the city. She tells her friends that because she knows that they wouldn't understand if she explained to them that, that he's awaiting trial in a detention center and is probably going to be sentenced to, to four or five years in the federal system. And there's an incredible amount of pain that comes with that. In essence, they're victims, unseen victims, of the way that we do justice. As a community chaplain, Hugh Kierkegaard is concerned with the relationship between prison and society. One of the things that has most troubled this relationship in recent years has been the return to the community of sex offenders whose warrants of committal have expired and who can no longer be legally held in prison. Many of these men have literally been driven out of the communities in which they tried to settle. Hugh Kierkegaard and some colleagues decided to create what they called a circle of support for one such offender in Toronto. 
He had been released into the community at the end of his sentence. There had been some publicity earlier in his sentence around his crimes, as there are with these kind of offenders. And when he was released, it was to, in essence, a media barrage outside of the prison. And he experienced uh, what many of these offenders experience, being chased out of a community. And he came to Toronto because he had, uh, he knew a couple of people here. What had he done? This individual was a pedophile. He had a, a pattern of behavior that involved touching and um, playing with children. The problem is, though, all those distinctions blur in the public mind when they hear the word pedophile or when you hear the word sex offender and, and automatically our minds go to the worst. One of the things that strikes me about that is that what we do know about sexual offending is that a vast majority of sexual offenders are someone that the victim knows quite well. They're not strangers. They're not people in the community who, who go around and, and, and pray. This individual was, was marked by his, his record, obviously. And uh, our involvement began as we realized that uh, he was here in the community to stay. He had nowhere else to go. And in fact, if we chased him out of this community, chances are it, it, it would just go from bad to worse. There, there are a lot of factors that come into play, but the chances of reoffending, I think, uh, with any uh, offender, uh, go up when they're isolated from community, when they are afraid, and when they are driven back to old coping mechanisms, for instance, drinking or, or, or substance abuse. So there's a balance to be struck here. And if we work with these individuals in community and we hold them accountable and we, we, we build some structures to receive them and work with them in the community, then they're not isolated, they're not alone, and um, they're not driven back to old coping strategies because they have the support in the community that allows them to cope in new ways. And so all of those things kind of came into play as we began to work with this individual. And how have you, how have you worked with him? We, um, we formed a circle of support around him every day. Uh, somebody would go and see him, uh, go have coffee with him, go visit, talk. And then as he got established in the community, got a place to live that we helped him find, uh, we, um, we would uh, maintain that kind of intensive contact, but, but sometimes it was by phone. We dealt with the police. We dealt with, uh, with mental health professionals who were, were working with him. And uh, we began to deal as well with the media uh, initially taking a protective role. It was a, a real balancing thing because we, we were acting both as an advocate for him and at the same time we were, we were acting on behalf of the community in a way that would make the community safe. Uh, and so there was a, a balancing act. The circle of support that Hugh Kierkegaard assembled 
has now been working for over a year and a half. One of its members is Sally Boyles, a former prison chaplain and now the rector of Holy Trinity Church in downtown Toronto. She says that the panic fear that has spread around pedophiles reflects the absence of a relationship in which those fears can be addressed. Some people in the neighbourhood indeed need to get to know this person and to ask the questions that scare them the most and, and keep asking those questions until they have some satisfaction because I think that a great deal of fear goes away if you understand a person better and you know their habits. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking those difficult questions. I don't think when I say this person should be allowed to live safely in a neighborhood, the neighborhood should also be allowed to live safely with this person. And so I'm not in for easy reintegration at all. Uh, but to have some people who would take up the uh, cause of this person and begin to help the community name what measures have to be in place to help this person live safely there. When I was a little girl, I lived in a very tiny community, and everyone knew that there was someone in town who loved peeking in windows. I don't think as a child it hurt me to know that I was to keep my blind pulled in my bedroom. And as far as I know, that person never went to jail, but there was also no one in town who didn't know that person's tendency. Um, we could say that we should be so safe that I wouldn't have to think of that. But it strikes me that that leaves me out of relationship with that person. And that person indeed had mental challenges. And, and so it is prudent that me, with many more resources to begin with, have to do some caring towards that other person. The idea that communities formerly managed to contain a lot of the problems now treated as criminal matters is also shared by Hugh Kierkegaard. He can remember someone analogous to Sally Boyle's Peeping Tom in the small New Brunswick city where he grew up. That individual, who would have been in his early 20s at that point, um, he was developmentally delayed, smoked big cigars and rode around his bicycle. We'll call him Frankie. We were told as children, you can say hi to Frankie, but don't you ever talk to him or don't you ever go anywhere with him. And so we didn't. And the, the parents and, and everybody in the neighborhood made sure, uh, in a, a, there was a kind of a, an unwritten social contract in our neighborhood that, that, uh, that Frankie was a part of the community and he was allowed to be there and live with his parents in the community. But it was implicit to the contract that he was not to deal with the children in the community. And I've thought about that story a lot in, in, in the last year. It may be a little idyllic, but how, how do we create that kind of community or recreate that kind of community where these people are allowed to live among us in a way that recognizes the potential harm that could be done, but also recognizes that they, they probably are people that have been harmed as well? who have been offended against before they became offenders. And there was nobody there perhaps to protect them or to speak on their behalf when they were being offended against. And how do we, how do we create the kind of community that allows them to live in the community with accountability, but also with the recognition that they are somebody's son or daughter or brother? They're not a stranger from outside. They're one of us. 
And that seems to me the challenge that we're, we're facing here, working with worn expiry sex offenders. And, and it's a challenge not only to the way that we view offenders, but the way that we understand community. Another attempt to build a circle of hospitality and support around a released sex offender occurred in Hamilton, but it was attended by a lot more controversy than in Toronto. In the Hamilton case, a man who is here given the pseudonym Eddie was released from Workworth Penitentiary at the end of a seven-year sentence for sexual interference with boys between the ages of eight and ten, his fourth conviction on such a charge. The prison psychologist appealed to Harry Nye, the Mennonite pastor whom you heard earlier, to help Eddie get settled in Hamilton. Nye had known Eddie in prison, and he agreed to try to build a support network for him. He made his involvement in the case known to the Hamilton police. As the law now requires, they had already been officially notified of Eddie's impending release. Two detectives met with me, and I said, I just want you to know that we're here and, uh, and that we want to provide support for Ed. And he said, we don't want him here. We want him to go to Burlington. We want him to go to any other community. But we don't want him here. We've got a file here from the institution saying he's 99% chance of reoffending. And um, within our local community in Hamilton, there had just been a recent case of a man who had, been, who had escaped from Hamilton Psychiatric uh, Hospital. The police had made a decision not to inform the public immediately. And within a matter of hours, he had sexually assaulted a young boy. And so they had taken an awful lot of bad publicity about this. And so they were very gun-shy about another pedophile coming back into the community. In Eddie's case, the police decided they would inform the public. Already burned by the previous incident, their concern intensified when they were told by the prison authorities that the drug therapy intended to reduce Eddie's sex drive had been discontinued because it had caused life-threatening blood clots. The release of his name, picture, and criminal record touched off a major panic. A bold front-page headline in the Hamilton Spectator called the street on which Eddie settled the Street of Fear. The story went on to describe a frightened citizen photographing a suspicious-looking man in a parked car who turned out to be a photographer from the Spectator. Harry Nye was caught unawares at the center of this firestorm. The school department people issued a... Uh, a large a photograph and details about Eddie's uh, um, uh, warning the children. Every child in the Hamilton-Wentworth region received this on his deck, desk. It came on the desk of my son, who was at that point in grade four. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I know him. He was at our place for supper last night. <laughs> we were really glad that it was at the end of the school year because... Um, because the kids wanted to know, and, and I was terrified because uh, I, I knew the kind of publicity that can be generated in this way. I, I thought we might end up with pickets out front of our house. The police also decided that Eddie was a significant danger to reoffend because of the termination of the drug treatment program. And they decided to keep him under 24-hour surveillance. So for six weeks, he was under 20, constant 24-hour surveillance front and back at his house. And that opened up a whole range of, of uh, uh, other um, 
realities, such as taking food into him, making sure that he was provided for, because uh, he was scared to go out in the, on the street. Every uh, street post had his photo on it, and people were up and down looking for him. He couldn't go out. When If he did go out, people actually ran from him on one occasion. He was kind of like a, a captive here in his own house, under house arrest. There was one episode almost like Beverly Hills Cop where he went out with coffee to give to the police, the undercover police who were watching him, and they said, well, you shouldn't be out here. You're not even supposed to know we're here. That was kind of his nature. So for six weeks, an, an enormous cost, over $300,000, we have been told, to, to, for this surveillance to happen. I went back to my church and said, what do we do? Do you want to accept Eddie into our congregation? You know who he is, and you know all about him. And, and everybody spoke. We had two meetings. Everyone spoke and expressed their fears and expressed their hesitations. And unanimously, the church said, we will accept him. And I think it's partly the character of, of our community here, because it's um, uh, low-income folk, folk who a lot of them have known institutionalization of various forms in their lives. One woman said, if Jesus hadn't accepted me, I, I, <laughs> where would I be? So I, how can we say no to, to Eddie? So he came. So he, he, we said yes to him. We also, in the face of the hostility of the community and the fear of the community, we as a church decided on a Sunday evening to have a welcoming party for him. It, it, it was one way of saying to him, we accept and adopt you with all of the difficulties that, that you bring to us. But we also want to welcome you as a brother and as a person in God's image. And uh, Eddie had actually invited the police to come to the party, too. And, uh, and they came. Actually, one, one of the officers came at 10.30 at night, came up the back steps. He said to him, Eddie, I'm really sorry. We, we wanted to come earlier, but we were afraid the press would be here. <laughs> the police officer, who was the, the liaison, was a tremendous person, is a tremendous person, who built a relationship of trust with Eddie. He became part of our circle of support meetings. He would come and listen. And, 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 and I wanted to say more about the circle of support. We would be in touch with him every day. He would call us. We would call him. The practical things like furniture that was needed, uh, taking food, uh, arranging for laundry. But I remember our first meeting, the spontaneous thing surprised me. One woman who, who was sort of fringe to our church but volunteered to be part of this said, I think Eddie needs a cat. That, was, that, that came out of nowhere. I would never have thought of that. But it's been, it's been life-saving for him. So the circle of support has been there kind of like a small family for him. There's nothing very sophisticated about this. But it's also been there to confront him at times when he's needed to have confrontation. There are times when, when his behavior may be getting a little bit risky. It's a very imperfect kind of instrument. But at this point in time... It's been a year and a half, and he hasn't reoffended yet. There's still regular daily contact, and I think it will have to continue for some time. But he has begun to build relationships. He's begun to reach out. He he has volunteered with uh, some seniors, for example, one-to-one relationship, and has been a giving person in that way. A different perspective on Eddie's case comes from Stella Wook, who was one of the people prominently involved in the community reaction to Eddie's release. She's a retired nurse who now works with children in the neighborhood where Eddie settled. She was concerned with the threat she felt Eddie posed to the children, and she participated in leafleting and postering the neighborhood when he moved in. 
I visited her in her apartment, and she showed me some of the letters she received from unhappy neighbors after his arrival. It set out pure fear. It was, it, I got letter after letter after letter. And the next day after, I went and videotaped the street. There wasn't a soul in sight. Nobody. And the kids that used to play hockey, street hockey, didn't play there anymore. At the time, I was more worried about the ethnic mothers, you know, that, that don't speak English and, and don't read The Spectator. And uh, how, how would they know? But the word spread through the school and uh, the whole street was empty. Uh, several letters from mothers, you know, thinking that because the sex offenders clinic is in our neighborhood, you know, it's right here in the neighborhood. Are, are we going to get every pervert that comes out of the, the prison system coming to live here? I can vouch for the fact that a lot of people didn't sleep easy at night. Stella Wook eventually met Eddie at the urging of Harry Nye. He approached her after a meeting about the case. He says, I know you're angry, I know you're upset, I know you're worried, uh, distraught about the children in your neighbourhood, but would you like to meet Eddie? And I said, I'll have to think about that a little bit. He says, how about a, gr a group of your neighbours, you know? Ask them, would they like to come and meet him, you know, as a sort of uh, little bit of bonding, I would say. And uh, I did ask five different people and all but one of them wanted to beat him up. <laughs> you know, this is human nature. This is a pedophile. So I kind of put that on the back burner for a little while, and uh, I, I had decided to meet him myself. And I, I had Harry set it up at one of the local donut diners. I, I felt that I had to tell him. I spoke to him for an hour, and I felt the message I had to get out, out to him was that I, I work with a lot of children, you know. I, I, I'm very active with a lot of children, Sunday school, uh, church, girls club, boys club, uh, and getting kids to camp. And uh, I, I would hate if anything would ever happen to one of these kids, Eddie. I, I would be most upset, and, and, and I would be very, very angry with you. I felt I had to, you know, to tell him that... We, were, we are organized, and we will be watching you. And where we go from now, uh, it's up to you. It's, and then we ended up, actually, at, at the end of the conversation, uh, exchanging phone numbers. And uh, after that, I talked to him on a fairly regular basis, slowly at first. And on three, three or four occasions, I met with him. Once by myself, I owned up to his apartment and spoke to him for about an hour and a half. You, you have to realize that this chap has uh, the equivalent of a grade four education. And he actually thought that Mr. Clinton was the president of Canada. <laughs> he laughs a lot. Like it's, it's almost like it's a giggle all the time. He's a heavy, heavy smoker. And uh, there's something personable about him. Like if you had to talk to this guy, you would probably like him. But so would kids, because he's got that kind of personality. He's a charmer. But I, I kept the conversations going, and he would phone here, except for one time when he phoned here, my grandson picked up the phone. 
And he says to me, Grandma, it's Eddie. And I, I actually got about a tachycardia. My heart, <laughs> my heart went up to about 120. And, you know, it's crazy because he's only talking to him on the phone, you know. Stella Wook listened to Eddie, sympathized with him, and helped him when she could. But she never changed her view that he ought to be confined. Eventually, he ended their relationship when he learned that she had told the Hamilton Spectator that he was a dangerous man. He is a dangerous man. He's lethal to kids. And, and you, know, you know, the bottom line is there is no cure for this. So he's, he's an accident waiting to happen, you know. He will strike again. He will. And I think if people realize that, then these, these, these persons should be deemed high-risk offenders and not be allowed out. This is my personal opinion. When children are involved, you know, we, we in the public, it's time we stood up and spoke. And, and, and in instead of just the police and, and the social workers and uh, the authorities speaking out, we, we need to have a say too. There's a holy anger in the community about the violation of children. There's a righteous anger about that, and I think that has to be respected. So I, as a parent and as a, as a pastor in a community, we wanted to make sure that when, every time Eddie came to church, that he was never alone with kids, he was not to be babysitting with kids, you know, simple, basic precautions, and to be respectful of the community's fears. But I think that there's more resilience, creativity, and possibility within the community to respond to this situation than we're given credit for. We were really challenged at the, when we met at the police department uh, by community people there. Uh, they said, uh, are, you know, are you prepared to take responsibility for this man for action? I said, no, we're not prepared to take responsibility. But we feel that, that it's more dangerous for him to come back isolated and alone than it is for him to have at least some people around him so that he is in, so he's not in isolation. And we reached out to the neighborhood people who were very angry, and they said, let's have a meeting together. Let's you meet, you meet Eddie and talk with him and get to know him. We had it all set up. And they, the community people actually backed out of that meeting. They decided they did not want to meet him face to face. However, that neighborhood association knows where he is, and they keep an eye on him too. So the, if the community, why can't we be more creative about mobilizing the community? First of all, it, the, the, the community which is paralyzed by fear, kids not allowed out in the street, and the police were getting calls all the way from Toronto saying that they saw Eddie there when, when this was happening. They, uh, the one detective sergeant told me 10% of his time in that, in that year was taken up with this one case. So tremendous um, fear that is created. But if the community can be mobilized to form some type of protective cocoon around this person, a compassionate cocoon we provide for security as well as some insight into what's going on. The only other alternatives are to, are to build costly more institutions that are, are $160,000 a year to keep a guy there. How many of these can we build? They're going to be coming out. And if we don't mobilize in a creative and positive way, and it can be done. And I, I want to say too that, that, that the circles of support, ours here, Another group in Toronto that's worked with with a, a similar offender have been able to say to the police at times, "I think you need to step in on this situation. I think you need to. You know, I think that I think he's losing it a bit. You know, it, it's time to bring in some authority here." And uh, I think have been able to ward off from time to time problem situations.
Eddie's arrival in Hamilton set off such a storm that Harry Nye says he probably never would have agreed to become involved if he'd known in advance what was going to happen. But having said yes, he steered into that wind, and today he can say that circles of support appear to be the way to go, not just because they are a prudent way of dealing with a feared person, but because including that person expands and strengthens the community. We came out of church one Sunday. We were standing around talking, as we always do here. And across the street, a man started screaming. Right over there, he started screaming at the top of his lungs. You get out of here. I'm going to kill you. You're not wanted in this community. And he, he was very drunk. And uh, we were galvanized, as you could imagine. At the top of his lungs, people were coming out in the houses around. And it was just the kind of... <laughs> experience that we had feared all the way along. What was going to happen? And uh, I'm going to shoot you. This man was a single parent living with two, two young kids. And I, I said to Eddie, you get, you get home. And so he got on his bike and hightailed it off. And I went over to talk with him. And he was very drunk. And, and uh, I stood on the steps. And there was a lot of beer bottles around. And, and um, he said, I don't care if they, if they come and get me. And my, the Creator will take care of my children. So on. But you know what he's done? He's a child molester. He does not want it in this community. And I went home, and our people went home scared, and we were praying what was going to happen next. Eddie called his police contact, and they went and talked with the man. But the next morning I came, and he called me over. His name was John, and he said, Pastor, see you for a minute. He said, I want to apologize to you and your people for what I did yesterday. And he started talking to me, and I started talking and asking some questions. I realized here was a man who was living alone with his two kids. But he was also a man, as he talk, talked to me, who was been a victim himself of abuse at the St. John's Training School. He showed me a letter. he just gotten this letter, $28,000 settlement for the abuse that he had suffered. It's a man who had a scar in his stomach where he had tried to take his life, dealing with this kind of anguish. I said, John, you know, why don't you come on over? We've got programs for your kids. You're welcome to come on over too. The next Sunday, he was in church with his two kids. <laughs> My friend Eddie was, he was too scared to come back. He wasn't there that Sunday. Two weeks later, they both met in the foyer of the church. They shook hands, apologized to one another, you know, made a reconciliation. One of our people at church said, Harry, if you had told me that, that a week later that this guy would be sitting in church, that blows my mind. I would never have believed it. And it made two of us. But it seems to me that in, in kind of in a microcosm, that people, if, if people can somehow bridge those gaps and begin to talk to one another, you know, that the levels of fear can be reduced see one another as people. To see one another as people is the essence of the idea of circles of support. Eddie was brought out of what was potentially total, terrifying isolation, out of the confinement and contempt which belonged to a category like child molester, into a new community. And through that community, he became visible as a person. This is exactly what Pierre Allard thinks that Christian faith ought to do, challenge the fear that keeps people imprisoned in stereotypes. Pierre Allard is the head of chaplaincy with the Correctional Service of Canada. His wife Judy has worked alongside him. Judy and I like a, were among some of the pioneers to bring people inside jail, like ordinary people, people who sat in churches and had never thought they would ever go in a prison. Well, we've brought an awful lot of them through the years. 
And I would say, David, in 99% of the cases, after people had been there once or twice, they always came to us and said, Pierre, I never thought it was like this. <laughs> you see, and what had happened is that all the exemplification they had in their mind or the mental images they had of the prisoners, and I didn't ask them what they were, <laughs> but now they had been completely put down. Why? Because they had met like human beings. I'll always remember one lady who had raised eight children as a widow, like she had to raise them all, like her husband died on the birth of the eighth one. And finally she called me and she said, you know, I've been resisting for two years. I feel I should go, but I don't want, what can I bring? And I said, look, you've raised eight children. That's a great preparation to come to prison. So I, after we did the clearance and all that, she Elsie came one night and I could just hear she was nervous and, and we sang and shared. And, and then when we broke for coffee, I just saw one guy, like, you know, taking a beeline toward her. And she was really nervous. She got a back off you. And he went to her and said, look, you remind me so much of my grandmother. You know, and then the ice was broken. And she's followed that guy now for about 15 years. Okay? It, it, it's that human character. It's not trying to say, hey, they have not done it. It's that the, whatever they have done, there is still a spark of the divine. Whatever ugly the image is of God however broken it is. And we must try with determination and courage and with faith and hope, trying to find that little corner and try to spark it like for greater renewal. Pierre Allard has a deep commitment to his vision of rejected people restored to the community. But there is nothing sentimental in this hope. He's worked inside prisons for too many years not to know the worst about people. He's sustained, finally, by his faith. My wife and I walk in Archambault Penitentiary, and I don't want to dramatize here, David, but I guarantee you, when we walk in that penitentiary that night, we, we just sense there was, a, there was a, a presence of evil. There was something just different. And just as we went, like the, about 40 guys came down the chapel area, and just as we went to begin the, the group, one guy turned to Judy and he said, there's a knife in the air, and it's going to fall at this very minute. And at that very minute, one inmate on the range was opening up the brains of Leopold Zion, who had killed some children in the Quebec area, and was seeing that he was Lawrence of Arabia, and splattered his brain all over the place, and, you know, sang about it and yelled about it. I had to go and, uh, and be part of that situation, but for me... In many, many ways, some situations in crime are so ugly, so scary, that they have a depth of depths that uh, are very scary for us. And uh, to know that, that Jesus uh, walked through those valleys of death and, and emerged on the other side in the resurrection, I think can give a, a vision and a, and a strength to a, a prison chaplain and those involved in the criminal justice to continue going on so that... Uh, Good can triumph over evil. This is for me the key verse for our ministry, Romans 12, 21. Don't let evil triumph over you, but triumph over evil with good. But Christianity is at the core. The Christianity should be the most realistic uh, faith in a sense because it does not deny evil. It, it recognizes the reality of evil. It recognizes how ugly evil is, all the damages that evil is and does. But at the same time, it is not afraid of penetrating that world of evil and saying, with God's help and in Jesus, we can triumph. The entering of evil without fear can only 
in my my perspective and in my own ministry, uh, I don't dare approach it without um, Christ's strength and Christ's presence. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the tenth and final program in our series, Prison and Its Alternatives, by David Cayley. The series producer was Alison Moss, technical producer Lorne Tulk, and production assistant Gail Brownell. A printed transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can buy the entire ten-part series for only $25 plus GST. Send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We also have a free reading list for the series. If you'd like one, write to us at the same address or you can contact us by email. Our electronic address is ideasattoronto.cbc.ca. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. And I'm Lister Sinclair.